0: Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S.us for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only you should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.
1: Exhibit C, same same story as recent Wednesdays. The demand isn't the problem. Even China, with all the issues they're going through, oil demand is pretty good. It's oversupply. And the price of oil depends on Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi. The two companies are actually holding production back, continuing to do that. Exhibit B on natural gas, same story. Demand's pretty good. LNG, peat gas is good. Power is good. Weather is a little warmer than normal across the country, but uh, it's basically a supply problem. Natural gas, dry natural gas production, which was as little as 91 these a day in 21, is now running one hundred six. Forecast many could it be. That is not re- rate reaching one oh six to twenty five. This will correct. It'll take dropping rigs and not having as many completions, but there's gonna be a lag in the correction. So the April contract is a plus sixty, which is an incredibly low number. Consider that the average price was six dollars twenty two, an average two hundred eighty last year. Average 370 in 21, which is the year coming out of COVID. Actually, still in COVID. So it's an incredibly low number. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit later about the energy companies before we get into NVIDIA and chips and what we can anticipate from their earnings release after the close today. We're going to cover a bit of energy. Exhibit A, the... uh, the House of Representatives took a two week vacation or time off to go back and see constituents. So the Ukraine bill didn't, didn't come up. And they have a March 1 and a March 8 deadline for finishing the 12 expenditure bills. They come back from vacation or time off with only three days remaining till March 1. I assume, even though Michael Johnson, the House Speaker says, no, no continued resolution. I assume since we're about halfway through the fiscal year that ends in September 30 24, that there'll be a continuing resolution. Interestingly enough, in the deal negotiated by Kevin McCarthy for the debt ceiling, the continuing resolution will have to have a 1% cut in all spending to include defense spending. So expect to see a lot about that next week. Last week we started with the end of the memo and we made it through we made it up to uh, the energy companies and for those who don't have the uh, 20 pages in front of you uh, the page I'm on is page 12 and this page is the gas companies and the gas companies are trading as though, Gas is going to average about this year what it did last year, which is around 280. They're not reflecting the current gas price. And, in fact, what is likely to happen to the price of gas is some recovery as we get into the spring and summer. Are these companies buys? This is Antero 23, QT at 39, Chesapeake at 77. I don't think so. I think the thing to do is to see what happens in the next few months, the decline in gas pricing is unprecedented. I mean, you can go back many decades and not find the kind of decline that's taken place. So I think the best thing to do is let's just up settle. If you own these stocks, I wouldn't be chased out of them. But I'm not sure that I would get into them now, probably wait and see see what happens to the gas market. The gas market is not helped by the Biden administration putting a hold on new LNG capacity after about 2027. That is a commitment to try to get people out to vote for, in the presidential election, where climate change is one of their key issues. The whole idea here is phase out of all fossil fuels, which most observers think that that, that just is imprudent, that the reason to... Continue to build up our LNG capacity is to be able to supply Europe and the rest of the world with Russian gas not available. But this is a political calculation that's made, and maybe it'll work for them. We'll have to see uh, when we get to November. Page 11 is oil companies EOG, Magnolia, Permian Resources, and Diamondback. Diamondback's been in the news recently because it acquired a private company called Endeavor. Hello, who's In his mid-80s, who owns Endeavor, Autry Stevens, now is a little bit richer than Harold Hamm, the guy who owns Continental Resources. And it will be, it'll make Diamondback stronger. Now that Pioneer is going into Exxon, Diamondback will become the preferred way to own production in the Midland Basin. Permian includes two major basins, the Midland Basin and the Delaware Basin. The Delaware Basin is to the west. It's about three times the aerial extent. Midland Basin, interestingly enough, is it, that two companies now, Exxon owning Pioneer, Diamondback owning Endeavor, will control half of the production in Midland Basin. So uh, I think we can expect to see the FTC and the Justice Department, especially in election year, raising issues about that. But I don't see that there really is. And then I trust case against having these transactions go forward. EOG is kind of the, the, the benchmark that we use, lots of people use, because they're multi-basin. They have Eagle Eagleford, Bakken, Outer, and they are extremely well run. They will never spend more than half their free cash flow. Here, every free cash flow is almost $6 million, and their cash tax is $6 million, so they're right on 50%. The CEO of EOT a couple of weeks ago in a uh, news conference said that he didn't think, and they weren't projecting, that their 24 production would be increased from their 23 production. That's the way EOG runs, that if they can't make their plans, it'll be somewhat lower production. I think judged by their past behavior, they're very unlikely to spend, have their capex be more than half of their EBITDA. Magnolia is kind of a special case. It operates in the chalk rather than the Eagleford in South Texas, and it's been very successful. And uh, as you can see, their, their free cash flow, they're also spending about half of their free cash flow, and they 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 expect to be able to still increase their production. Brilliant Resources is a new company formed by private company, Colgate, being merged into a public company. Uh, so it is harder to figure out what's going on. But once again, they're at about that 50% level, and as is Diamondback. So if you're interested in any of these companies, I mean, EOG is really awfully well run. Uh, Diamondback, especially with the Endeavor properties, uh, you can make a pretty strong case for in terms of stock performance, probably Magnolia has been the best. But all these companies are, you know, potential investments, I'd say, at current levels. Now, current levels reflect $75 oil. When we covered the Sea, if somehow Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi decided they didn't want to curtail 3 million barrels a day of production, the price of oil would be substantially lower. But... They have their own reasons for curtailing production, and hopefully, uh, from a point of view of the price of oil, they'll continue. Page 10 is the midstream companies, Inter Enterprise, Energy Transfer, and Western. These companies are all trading about fifteen or 12 or 15 times per cash flow. I think they're pretty fairly valued. They have dividends. Their dividends don't go up as quickly, and they all have debt, and they don't have enough free cash flow. The margin between their free cash flow and their distribution isn't enough to really take their debt down. Whereas, you look at EOG, with the, with the higher oil and gas prices, they basically paid off all their debt. So, between upstream, a good upstream company, a good midstream company, at least based on recent performance, you'd rather have the upstream company. Page nine, this is Exxon, Chevron, Conoco, Oxy Engineer. Conoco and Oxy are just large independent. Exxon and Chevron still have refining and marketing. They're very well-run companies. Here, the differential between an EOG at, say, 11 or 12 times free cash flow and Exxon and Chevron at around 11 times free cash flow is remarkable. Normally, these the larger companies would trade at a lower ratio. I think it's a tribute to. Being awfully well run, but they have come up to the 11 times free cash flow. Conoco is at a premium times free cash flow. Maybe it's deserved. Oxy, which is you know pretty significant chunk of it, both preferred and common, owned by uh, Berkshire Hathaway, is at around 10 times free cash flow. Chenier is an interesting company, very hard to try to think about, but Cheniere is the largest owner of LNG. Uh, trains or LNG uh, capacity. The capacity to make LNG in the U.S. There are two big facilities at Sabine Pass and Chesapeake. If our capacity is 15 B's a day, I think I think those are like six or seven out of the 15. So it is very significant in the LNG business. It off these numbers, it's trading for seven times free cash flow. They don't really make money from changes in commodity, LNG versus gas. I mean, obviously, if LNG is higher, it's good for them, but mostly they're on a tolling basis, but an interesting company nonetheless. In terms of dividend yield, Exxon and Chevron are around 4%, Conoco's 2%, Oxy's 1%, and Shamir is only 1%. Uh, with that, uh, we now have half the, half the 30 minutes to talk about what's how to think about NVIDIA. Now, just an introduction, we get to page one and two. NVIDIA now is trading for more. In other words, its equity value is more than Amazon and more than Alphabet or Google. Now, Google has recent rate of free cash, flow 53 billion and Amazon has about 38 billion. Uh, Amazon has been coming back strongly I think it's realistic to think that Amazon will get the $60 billion of free cash flow. Alphabet has some risk that their principal source of cash flow, their search business, is challenged by AI. But the question I want to address, I guess we'll address this to Jason, because Mike and I talk about it at least 10 minutes out of our 20 minutes a morning. How in the world is NVIDIA trading for more than these two companies? When this time last year, its free cash flow was running. I mean, it's a very well-run company and very, uh, very, you know, it's profitable all the time, pays the dividend. But their free cash flow is running at several billion dollars. How in the world does this happen? Over to you, Jason.
2: A lot of sales growth. So, so this same quarter last year, I think they did about six billion in sales, uh, and they're expected to do about twenty-one billion. This this year, um, so so if the last twelve months on the sheet they, they had a free cash flow of twenty six billion, uh, they'll likely have nearly thirty eight where Amazon's trading. So the enterprise value being very similar between the two now, kind of makes sense. Um, everyone you know the, the stock in Nvidia has run up so much uh, that they say it's it's got to be overpriced, but it's kind of on par with Amazon. And you know, if their sales have tripled, you know they're executing.
1: <laughs> Mike and I were talking this morning, and I think Michael take the take the lead, but I think Jason may be better qualified. There's a uh, there's a startup that has what is potentially a uh, competing product. But over to you, Mike.
3: Yeah, there's been some. Recent news, I, I, th- I think we've talked about this a couple times. There's a number of AI, semiconductor-slash-software startups that are trying to chip away at NVIDIA's lead. We know the, the hyperscalers, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, they're all developing their own hardware, but there's a number of startups that are also doing similar things. And uh, the one that got the most... Um, uh, publicity in the last couple of days has been a company called Grock, Groq. G R O Q. They're an AI chip chip company, and what they their claim to fame is they've created chips that are able to um, essentially they operate faster with large language models than what the existing large language models do, and that's important because certain applications require lower latency. And if you look at the history of the internet, every improvement in latency or speed of response time has been accompanied by not only um, growth, but more innovation. So additional products being capable of being built. So the, the concept of tokens per second or whatever the, the metrics they're using um, is a good one to be aware of. Uh, the question is, is this impactful if you're a NVIDIA shareholder, or is this kind of just what the same thing the hyperscalers are doing and um, maybe more applicable to, uh, to to scaling individual well-defined models? So with that, I'm going to punt it over to Jason to get his, uh, <laughs> his read on the technological aspects of it and kind of uh, where it fits within... Uh, the, the whole ecosystem.
2: Yeah, so th- th- their service is very impressive. It's it's much quicker than if you use ChatGPT, which has gotten slower for for a number of reasons lately. Um, the way Grok uh, achieves their performance is they design chips uh, with the memory co-located to the processing, um, and what that means is is it doesn't have to access uh, separate memory on on the on the motherboard, on the on the chipset, and the trade-off there is is the amount of memory they can package on with the CPU is is much lower. Uh, so the the infrastructure that Grok is running to provide their language model to users is 576 uh, chipsets in a in a rack of servers, uh, and the equivalent equivalent performance on an NVIDIA setup would be. Eight H100s uh, that you can you can put in one server box. So you're buying two orders of magnitude nearly more hardware to run run the models, and the amount of performance you're gaining is is significant, but not nearly on par with that investment. And then when you when you're running hundreds of hundreds of chips versus eight chips, your OpEx to run that is I don't know how much more,
3: but... <laughs> well, uh, what well, the analysis we've seen has been it's at least an order of magnitude more expensive.
2: Right, right. You're, you're, you're powering the chips, you're cooling the chips, uh, you're running racks of infrastructure versus one server. Um, so the, the total cost of ownership to use the model, to run a model through Grok is much, much higher. Um, and if you're a hyperscaler, that's the number you care about and, and you're not going to... You're not going to make that investment just for incremental speed improvements. And how, how, how long does that speed improvement last, do you think? Well, right. In about a
3: month, we're expecting to see the next generation of NVIDIA chips. Um, so if you, know, if you have an IT budget and you're building out a data center and considering switching over to Grok, you might want to wait a month. Because um, I think this boils down to uh, the CIS versus risks type of a decision set. It, if you remember Pat Gelsinger and kind of one of the things that he was uh, instrumental in as far as the early decision processes at, um, at Intel was the focus on uh, SIS versus RIS and whether, which architecture made more sense. And maybe, again, I'll punt it to Jason for the technical description as to why that's kind of similar to this.
2: Why is it similar um, you're de- you're designing for a specific use case you're You're limiting the instruction set that the uh, chip can do so in the in the case of Grok, they call it a language processing unit, so it's it's really tailored to running language models. Um, GPUs are general you know graphics processing units, and they' as we've seen they're they're good at the kind of math operations that all AI applications are using. Um, so it's much more general purpose
3: yeah yeah and that's basically the the thing is if you can keep ahead on the performance aspect of a general purpose chip, then the specialty chips will only matter when you have a very specific workload that you know you're gonna have for a very long period of time, which is why you see companies like Google investing very heavily in TPUs for example, even though you know those are also more flexible actually than even these grok chips um but by specifying your hardware based on the the model that you're expecting uh to run you can build better more efficient hardware um, so none of that's too surprising
2: no and, and nvidia i believe it was two weeks ago announced that they have a, a custom silicon division that they've stood up um, so it's a services business. They're going to work with customers to custom design chips for their use cases. Um, I don't know. At the time, I thought it was maybe more so a play into China and helping them design chips for those use cases that they have that still fall within the sanctions, uh, U.S. sanctions. Um, but now today, maybe maybe it's more of an answer to they knew this Grok service was going to come out and, mm-hmm. and they're going to be able to build chips for potential Grok customers.
3: Well, I should point out, though, but what Grok's doing, the speed is important. Certain industries, really, really, really fast, and just as long as you're faster than the other guy, uh, is is really important. And, and the key example of that is finance. If you're doing running algorithmic trading of some sort, and you're using some sort of machine learning model to do that, if you can get just a little bit faster, you're happy to pay whatever the cost is. Um, because essentially you're making arbitrage profits at some point. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if some of their customers are financial institutions or hedge funds or,
1: or whatnot. I keep pointing to the, the huge margins in NVIDIA being vulnerable. Mike and Jason push back on that because they say that hyperscalers, the Microsofts, the Amazons, the Oracle, the Googles, for buying these uh, chips are getting their money back in a year. Um, the uh, What would have to happen for that not to be the case? Uh, I guess there'd have to be an oversupply of capacity to run large language models.
3: I, mm-hmm. Actually, it part partly, yeah. I, but I don't think it's a pure network build-out capacity issue like it was with Cisco and the dot-com era. I actually think it's more to do with use cases achieving good enough results with a current generation of hardware, because it's not until the performance requirement is so much lower than the performance being supplied that it makes sense to go to a more specialized um, architecture this, as of today, NVIDIA is so far ahead from a performance perspective that designing a specific hardware for a solution when we don't really have tons of obvious super money maker um, products out there, you're kind of at the early stages of that that sort of transformation. Um, Did that make sense? (laughs)
2: Yeah, I think you can look at the hyperscalers are building their own processors like TPUs and and whatnot, and you you hear Microsoft and Apple doing the same. They all have these special applications that they're running at very large scale like Siri and now Copilot and and things like that. So they know they have these applications that they need thousands and thousands of chips for to servers for to run. Um, So it makes sense for that. But yeah, these new language models, they don't have that killer application yet.
1: So, Jason was making the comparison between the idea being to a free cash flow level that was about, you know, the forty billion range where Amazon is. But, Jason, what about projecting from this point forward, five years from now? I mean, Amazon, Amazon Web Services will continue to grow. Their their digital uh, you know, delivery business will grow. Their advertising will. Probably pain a little bit on Google with search, you know, just using their own, you know, people calling to Amazon website to search rather than using Google to search. How, what, what does what does Nvidia do to maintain that forty billion of cash flow and grow it, you know, so that it would have a comparable outcome? In terms of growth of free cash flow to Amazon, or for that matter, Google, both of which are kind of in that forty billion range.
2: Yeah, they're going to have to. They've done a a great job of of capturing an ever growing percentage of the data center capex spend. Um, that's going to have to continue, and, and and how much is being spent on building data centers will continue to grow as well. Um, our computing needs are not going to slow down, and. Uh, you know, we've been talking about for the last year now text-based models. Uh, we're starting to see we've seen image models get better, and then just last week, OpenAI released a, a video generation model where they'll they'll generate a pretty amazing-looking 20-second clip. Uh, so that's only going to improve in the in these new use cases, whether it's image, video, audio. They use more compute power than generating text. So as applications do make financial sense, and, and they're built into products that we are going to use, uh, the compute necessary is only going to keep growing. Um, so I, I think you know, that that's not to say it's a, a linear path. Uh, you know, we're probably going to overbuild at some point. Uh, growth is going to stall, but that trend is, is, I don't see it not continuing.
3: Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's impossible to call the top of this cycle because we don't... Um, I, I, I think we'll have some telltale signs that it's time to slow down because either companies are figuring out how to make money with these GPU servers or they're not. Um, the early indications so far are pretty positive. And, but there's still a lot of the um, figuring things out that needs to be done. So...
0: Um,
3: you know, I think we're early stages.
0: This This episode of Telltales is brought to you by Top Mark Capital. They're not your typical hedge fund. They use a blend of best practices from value investing, venture capital, and private equity, which gives them a unique perspective on market dynamics. And the results truly speak for themselves. So if you're a qualified investor who's looking for an innovative, emerging manager, visit topmarkcapital.com to learn more. This is not an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy. Any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. And now, back to the show.
1: Yeah. Just before we bring off any healthcare news, any Vertex Pharmaceutical News or Antis News or, or, for that matter, software news, Microsoft or others, before we bring off.
3: You know, everything's been on uh, yeah. <laughs> on AI. Um, yeah. You know, we, we talked, to, Jason and I have been kind of going a little deeper on ARM and kind of di- uh, digesting the earnings uh, from the other week and started to kind of plot out all the owners. You know, t- they floated 10%, but remember that a good chunk of that 10% that ARM floated went to institutions like NVIDIA, um, Intel, Alphabet, yeah, so they're customers, which sort of made a lot of sense because part of the deal here is they're raising their prices. Now, I don't know how much those price hikes push through to customers like NVIDIA and Alphabet and Apple who um, have the, what do they call the universal license or whatever it's called. Um, but if it does, then them having an equity upside in the business certainly helps You know, take some of the pain away from uh, paying the increased fees to ARM, so, um, so we know that those shares weren't short. So the ones that were short, you know, you had you had, you know, about ten percent of the float short, and a good chunk of that was held up by a significantly sized institutions. So it sort of made sense that it popped, um, and and we'll see. I mean, ARM's whole strategy is to raise prices, and they believe they can raise prices quite a bit. So we'll see, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, they,
2: they plan to double their prices, but... Yeah. You know, that still doesn't justify where they
3: Well, yeah. right, I think they're gonna have to double every year for like five years in order right. to get to uh, a price point that makes sense to justify the valuation. All
1: right, you know, ARM, because the history of ARM is, they kind of gave it away. Their license fees, their policy fees were quite low. Good. Well, that, that pretty much is through our 30 minutes. So Everyone be well and stay healthy. And uh, the, uh, the NVIDIA news comes right after the close. We won't have trouble finding coverage of it. Uh, and, uh, and then we'll talk next Wednesday. Take care, everyone.
0: Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again next week as we will be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice, You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.